Would you talk in a boot? That was my northern Minnesota by way of Canada. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, senior writer Leah Leibovitz. Hello. Hello. And deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Shalom, (laughs) y'all. This is our Jews Across America episode. Happy 4th of July. We take this opportunity every year or our third year in a row to get out of lower Manhattan and see the wilds of America. In that spirit, we come to you live today from Scarsdale, New York. Which is literally (laughs) as far as we could get out of the city. We're like, let's get out of New York. And we drove to Scarsdale like, yeah, that's- Let's see America. (laughs) We just had a a tasty barbecue luncheon at the uh, house of our producer, Sarah Fredman Ader. We consumed some beef ethically and kosherutly prepared by former sponsors of ours, and also some faux beef for my needs. And it's been delicious. And we're just enjoying nature here in Scarsdale. Like this is the countryside. We have eaten at least three different species of nature. <laughs> I love and, it. And I will say we have retreated indoors. Yes, so we're now in, in the air conditioning to escape the, the hot rays of Westchester County. We do feel this is taking us out of our normal space, and now we want to take all of you out of the normal unorthodox space. We are traveling across the country this year, celebrating Independence Day by bringing you inspiring, hilarious, and complicated stories of what it means to be a Jew across this great country. You're going to hear from Iditarod racer Blair Braverman. We're going to hear from a lawyer fighting for immigrant rights at the border of El Paso, from a rabbi serving the fascinating Jewish community of Santa Fe, New Mexico from a former state senator from South Dakota who will make the case that Judaism is alive and well in Pierre. Or is it Fargo? I always forget which is South and which is North. Fargo's North Dakota. Fargo's North. Don't you follow Molly Yeh on Instagram? Pierre, South Dakota. As well as one of the guests from our live show way back when in Houston, Texas. So this episode might be known as, yes, there's Jewish life outside of New York, Miami, Boston, and LA show. So enjoy. Happy Independence Day to you. Before we get into our guests, I thought I would ask the collective here at Casa Eder in Scarsdale. We'll start with you, Stephanie Button. When you were growing up on Long Island, like when you thought of Jews in America, what did you think they were? Okay. So I grew up in Great Neck on Long Island, which is a heavily Jewish area. Most people I knew were Jewish. And I would say that when I grew up, I legitimately thought I was in like the heartland of Jewish America. If someone had asked like 16-year-old you, what percentage of America do you think is Jewish? Did you think it was 70% or were you aware? I think I was, I know I wasn't an idiot, but I definitely was ensconced in a way of life that like was worked for me, right? Like I would have said, you know, I get that Jews aren't the majority everywhere, but like I wouldn't have said like 3%. If that, I mean, now it's like, depending on how people identify, it's one to two. I also would have been like, excuse me, I need to go get my iced coffee at Bagel Hut. um, So can you stop asking me questions? (laughs) (laughs) Is Bagel Hut still there? Oh my God, yes. Still, you know, a great place. Podcast trip to Bagel Hut. Leo, growing up in Israel where the country is of its citizens, let's say, what percentage are Arab are non-Jewish Arab citizens? About 23. 23. So about 75%. And, and, the, and then, of course, there are, some are Christian, some are Muslim, but let's say 70 to 75% Jews. Mm-hmm. What percentage of America did you think was Jewish? I think I knew it was a very tiny percentage, but I had a real encounter with American Jews when I was 15 years old. Uh, I was a, a Boy Scout. Because, you know, virtuous and upstanding, of course, that's me. It's not the American Boy Scouts. Right? Oh, no, 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 no. It's it's like a paramilitary organization. <laughs> it's Israeli Scouts. It's right. co-ed. It's hardcore. It's wonderful. And they have this... Do you, do you uh, sell cookies? You do not sell <laughs> it's cookies. It's like Eurovision, but for camping. You're dropped in the woods for like weeks at a time and like have to make do. It's naked and afraid, basically. It's just afraid. <laughs> the biggest part of this experience was the youth delegation they choose like 30 people 
and they dispatched him to three and a half months in in America. <laughs> it's like Eddie Murphy's like, hello. Um, and I was standing there and I was really excited because this was me getting to know America for real. I've been to New York a bunch of times, but I I've been to JCC by the sea and Margate, New Jersey. But I was really excited to actually see the real America. And I'm standing there and they have this, like they call us in one by one to have these conversations about where you're going to spend the summer. This is like Book of Mormon. It's like, where are you going to get your mission? Exactly. Right, Uganda. And so Orlando. This is like <laughs> the shluchim of Chabad, right? Like, you and you, you're going to Camp Ramayin, the Berkshires. Like, you and you, you're going to Camp Ramayin, California. You're going you're to going Malibu. To yeah. Sprout Lake. You're going to like all these wonderful places I've heard so much about. And I was literally the last person left. And then I sort of walked in and they look at me. He's like, you're going to Tennessee and Arkansas. I was like, what? Why? <laughs> and this guy, who's the head of the delegation then, who's this former American Jew who had made Aliyah, I was like, looked at me and said, son, you're going there because you ain't afraid of them. And <laughs> as soon as I got to Tennessee, I was like, I know exactly what you mean, and this is my home. These are my Jews, and this is my America. It should be said that Tennessee has produced two of the great Jews I know, Michael Solson and Emma Green, whose, whose wedding I was at a couple of years Hello. ago. And, and who and you set up, right? Yeah. One of the two shaduchim I've made so far en route to the third to get me my wings uh, to no, heaven. I should say growing up in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is a pretty, it was, the town was Irish Catholic and Puerto Rican. And I didn't know any other non-Orthodox Jews. There was a small Orthodox contingent that still walked to their old shul in our neighborhood. Uh, which once upon a time maybe had been 10 or 15% Jewish, but was down to like less than 1%. Aside from that Orthodox remnant, I didn't know any other Jews within the city limits. There were some suburbs nearby that had some Jews. Um, so I knew those kids from the JCC where I'd go swimming sometimes. But otherwise, I didn't know any other Jews. I knew Puerto Ricans, Irish Americans, some Italian Americans, some black kids. And the Little League was organized by parish. So when you played baseball... <laughs> you played for you could play for like St. Mary's, Our Lady of Hope, known as Olo, Our Lady of Sacred Heart, Olsh. Um, I played for the one non-denominational team. It was called Coaches Club. And it was mostly <laughs> like it was like Irish and Italian kids whose parents weren't into the church. They like, couldn't it, even like, come up with a cool name, yeah. like Our Lady of Chayamushka. Or right. like no, no, no. No, Coaches Club was like for That's the kids awesome. whose families like had turned on the church for some reason. They'd gotten anti they just were anti-clerical, whatever. And so they wanted a non-church. They were still Catholic by ancestry, but they wanted a non-churchy little league team. And so, um, so I played, as did my friend Derek, whom you guys know of. Uh, I played for uh, for Coach's Club. But See, this is this is what I I love so dearly about my own kids' American experience going to day school. Like literally, if you ask them what percentage of America was Jewish, I think they'd go with like probably that was eighty eighty percent. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, they understand that there are non-Jews, but I think they consider them to be a very weird anomaly. <laughs> and then, of course, my relatives, I mean, I had a lot of relatives in Philadelphia. I had some relatives in Chicago and then and Pittsburgh. And then my dad's mother was from Lake Charles, Louisiana, which, of course, has produced some of the great Jews of all time, including uh, Tony Kushner and, and Alfred Urey of Driving Miss Daisy, uh, as well as producing sort of, in a sense, um, Lucinda Williams, who lived there for a while and so has that song, Lake Charles. But I thought there were Jews in Louisiana and Pennsylvania and then me. And that was it. And that was it. That was basically it. That was like the trifecta. I had never been to Long Island. It's still unclear if I've ever been to Long Island. You went to my wedding. You were definitely I on did. Long Island. <laughs> Is that what all of Long Island's like? Yeah, it's all just one big chuppah. That's yeah. amazing. With that many food stations? Yeah, awesome. food stations, yeah. <laughs> I'm going back there. Anyway, so look, if anyone has a lot to learn about American Jewry, it is the three of us who have basically been no further than Israel 
New York and maybe New England. Well, it's interesting because a, a criticism we hear a lot is like, you guys are so New York centric. And even when we try to, like, even when we try, people say it's not enough. So like, the, this is, we know that Jewish life exists outside of New York and flourishes and thrives. And so this is our attempt to show you that we do know that. And one of the really exciting things about our book coming out in the fall, the newest Jewish encyclopedia, is we're planning all sorts of trips to lots of places we're that are coming not out. New York Lake Charles. Yeah. Look out for us. Yeah. Temple Sinai and Lake Charles, bring us down. So let's kick it off. We traveled to Chicago last week for this extraordinary live show. Chicago Hadassah North Shore brought us out. We did a great show at the Logan Square Auditorium. And one of our guests was Blair Braverman, who grew up in California, uh, but then left for Norway as a teenager and then ended up in Alaska doing the Iditarod dog race. She's the author of the book, Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube, which is definitely the best memoir of California Jewish girl goes dog sledding by way of Norway that I've ever read. She was a terrific Jew of the week. She even showed up with our first ever dog of the week, her dog sledding dog, Flame, and we had a fabulous time with her. Have a listen. This is Blair Braverman. Blair, welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you. I want to introduce Flame also. Yeah. Um, She's really like cleaned up. You guys are really bad at eating popcorn, I think, because it's all over the floor in the back of the room. And it's all gone now. But this girl, actually, I want to give her a shout out. She um, pulled a sled over 3,000 miles last winter. Is it okay? Which is... Oh, thank you. Which is significantly farther than the distance from LA to New York City. Oh wow. my God. Um, and she finished the Iditarod. She finished a 440 mile race in the Arctic. So she's a super athlete and she likes belly rubs if you happen to pet her. I'm never traveling by United again. <laughs> it's going to be sled from now on. Next time my dog slacks off on a run, I'm going to be like, I just met a dog that went 3,000 miles. <laughs> um, before you guys ask questions, I just want to give you guys a shout out because I. Um, I actually, I discovered unorthodox during Iditarod. I did this thousand mile dog sled race that took 13 days and 19 hours and 23 minutes, I think. <laughs> and, and nine seconds. And, um, and so you listen to a lot of podcasts and I downloaded like the entire unorthodox catalog. I listened to it for like 24 hours straight, like through the day and the night. And I really appreciate that because I'm usually the only Jew wherever I am. Like, where I, I'm just the Jew. Like, people, like, will, like, touch me and be like, I've touched a Jew now. <laughs> and, um, and it's weird and it's lonely. And, you know, I was able to find kinship in that. You know, I think about what my Judaism is about. And it's about tikkun olam, you know, repairing the world, the idea that the world broke into a million pieces and it's our job and our lifetime to try to put those pieces together, leave the world better than we found it. It's about supporting human rights, holding our governments accountable, whether that's the United States or Israel. And I find that's very important to me. And I found that you guys have a space for the complexity of American Jewry. And I appreciate that. So thank you. Well, wow. this is so amazing. I I, I can't imagine we're like so helpful at the Iditarod. <laughs> I'd imagine we're the opposite of that, right? <laughs> like you're there in the, the, the tundra and you're like three jerks talking about saran wrap versus aluminum foil. <laughs> I mean, at some point I'd like, just be quiet. I just want the serene nature for a second. But I want to say that me, what she said means a tremendous amount to me because I think that, and I mean, I know, you know, we try not to be a political podcast because we need a break from politics working at a Jewish publication. But to the extent that we are, we always say, like, 
is this guest, whether they're far right or far, far left, Zionist or anti-Zionist or non-Zionist or just indifferent and they just want to talk about matzah brai, whatever they are, like, are they compelling and interesting and honest? Not, is there a litmus test? And I think that's so, like, we couldn't do the show otherwise. If we were ever part of a political party, we would bore ourselves. So anyway, thank you for saying that. And, but I have, a, I have a question because we were so honored to hear that you had, like, when we reached out to you, we didn't know you listened to the podcast. Who else? You didn't believe me. No, we didn't. <laughs> I was like, no, you guys were just in my ears. Like, I can tell you where it was. It was on the Yukon River and it was raining, which was awful. It was like one of the warmest Iditarods in record. Climate change is really hitting this sport hard, as it that. is northern yeah. communities all over. And, um, and so it rained for days, which was, which was awful. Like, it really, like, there was open water. Um, like, I was really worried about hypothermia for me. because I wouldn't have been worried if it was 30 below, but I was just drenched. Like you're down just like turns into like nothing. And it's, um, and I was like, well, I'll, you know, at least I'm listening to like interesting people. <laughs> and it's my last day on earth here in the Yukon River. Like, well, I'll, I'll die with interesting thoughts in my head. I think a lot of us understand like conceptually like a dog race, a dog sled. Like, oh but what is the Iditarod like? What is it? feel like to go through that? Could you sort of give us a, a window into that? Us mere mortals? <laughs> <laughs> um, what does it feel like? That's such a big question. Um, I mean, you're crossing, you know, a huge amount of space and it's, it's, you just go days. You're so far from civilization. You can't get to these places except by dog sled, snowmobile, or bush plane, basically. And um, I mean, it was kind of, ridiculous it was really it was really awful and like also the most beautiful thing I've ever done but you spend you know the dogs are running your whole goal all your energy when you're out there is to like make the dogs think that this is the best thing they've ever done like it's interesting because you're out there being an endurance athlete you slept like maybe two hours each night for the past week and you're out there like like I couldn't eat anything I, I forgot to pack water you're supposed to pack water. I didn't know this because it was my first Iditarod. Like, people send water bottles to checkpoints ahead of time. I just assumed there would be water somehow. It was a rookie mistake. So it, for it'd, be, 40, it'd be like a race. You'll get, like, Gatorade and an apple. And no, like there was, it was not. I mean, I, I sent to each checkpoint, I sent 150 pounds of various sliced meats. Um, but I did not send any water for myself. And so at some point, I just was like, you know what, like... Okay, I'm just gonna start. I'm just gonna give myself Giardia, and I just started like sticking my face in every river because they were all open. And I was like, you know what? Better to have Giardia in three weeks than to not be able to get through the next hour. Um, you know, so you're making decisions like that, and you haven't slept. But when the dogs are running, you're steering the sled and the trail. There was so much trail without snow on it. Like I didn't know you could do that. It didn't make sense. It's like skiing on cement. Um, it's like, you know, you're at the top of a mountain trying to downhill ski and there's no snow. Like, so you're being pulled forward on these runners just going over like boulders and roots and stuff. Like, it doesn't make sense. I was like, what is this? This is a trick. Like, I am dreaming and someone is hazing me. Like, these are the thoughts that went through my head, but the dogs love it. Now, all these and times you're with 26 dogs. No, 14 dogs 14 in dogs. the race. Yeah. Okay. Now, do, do, the, do the dogs have very distinct personalities? Yeah. Are they like a high school clique? Yeah, very much. Is there like the much. jock, the nerd? 
Yeah, yeah, so that's really tricky because you can't put like two jocks right next to each other if there's a girl that they like because they're going to like, you know, get in a match of bravado trying to impress her. So you have to like negotiate all this stuff and also be like, okay, who is able to cross this river and who's not going to attack a moose because that dog needs to be in front. Um, <laughs> just constant like playing. My dad's a professional chess player. And I always tell him, like, oh, my God, dog sledding is just like chess. And he, he never believes me, but I, I just will keep saying that forever. So, we have to back up here because you decided as a high school junior to go do a school year abroad in Norway. Yes. And then you got out of high school. This is all in the book, which is so good. I, the book, it's Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube. I read it through twice. It's an extraordinary book. And then you go after high school. You're like, I'm not ready for Colby College in Maine yet. I'm going to go to socialist dog sledding year-long Norwegian government-funded school, yes, folk school. in the Arctic. In the Arctic, right? Yeah. I mean... In a village of 40 former seal hunters. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, you... What the book is about is sort of, among other things, is this sort of... This magnetic pull northwards that you've had all your life. But then it's also about dog love, and it's also about discovering yourself, and... Um, do you feel like that pull has been, is it, is it being drawn down or will you always need to go north and north and north? Well, I sort of, I found, I found the north that's really my home right now. I live about five hours north of here um, in a town called Mountain that has 500 people. Um, you know, it's the kind of town where like if you need your hair cut, you go to the undertaker because he learned how to cut hair in undertaking school. Um, <laughs> But you can't move at all. And, um... <laughs> yeah, you have to be... You have to lie down. Yeah. Um, and I got there, and, and my husband lives there, and um, he's lived there since he was a teenager when he was kicked out of church camp, and he didn't want to tell his family, so he moved on to an abandoned farm. And um, that's where we live now. So and, when you guys met, you were like, I have a story for you. And he's like, no, I have a story for you. <laughs> like, yeah, we did. <laughs> it was, it was a, a perfect combination. But um, he told me when I, when I moved to this town, you know, he was like, you know, it's cold. And I was like, not cold enough. <laughs> and um, he was like, okay, here's the thing you need to know about Mountain, Wisconsin. Like, there's no school, there's no grocery store, but you need to be a member of either a church or a bar, one or the other. And I was like, well, obviously, I'm not going to be a member of a church. So I had to join a bar. Which bar did you choose? The schoolhouse bar. If you're driving north, you'll see it. It looks like a schoolhouse. Do you actually join the bar or just hang out there until you're like a regular? No, you just have to spend too much time there. You just, just, just drink they, enough. They let me dog sled there and tie out my dogs outside and then go in for hot chocolate and then dog sled back home. <laughs> That's like my kind of bar. Would you At like two in the morning on a Saturday night. Would you read us a bit from your excellent memoir, Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube? Sure. And set up what this story tells, this part? Sure. I'll read a, um, this is a short <laughs> section, don't worry, because there's nothing worse than coming to an event, an event you don't think is a reading and discovering it's a reading. <laughs> okay, so this is about a page. What you need to know here is that I'm at dog sledding, socialist dog sledding boarding school in the Arctic. And... Um, I'm on Svalbard, which is this archipelago uh, like way above mainland Europe, like 
pretty close to the pole. There like aren't trees, you know? So I'm there, it's like the school trip with me and the other dog sledding students. And our dog sledding teacher is named Talak, and we have a guide. I'm gonna skip some parts, so I'll fill it in if it's confusing. We've just gone on sort of a mini expedition. That night, atop a glacier, we made an unusual camp. A cluster of tents with the dogs staked in a ring around us. The dogs were not in a circle so they could fight off a polar bear. They were in a circle so that a polar bear, when it reached us, would already have a full stomach. I always make her cover her ears during that part. <laughs> I volunteered for the first watch shift from 10 to 12 to get it over with. My headlamp was dim. It didn't illuminate past the first row of dogs. How will I know if there's a bear? I asked the guide. The dogs will know. And then? Wake me up, he said. I'll sleep with the gun. He stepped into the nearest tent, zipped it shut after him. All around, students in the other tents were closing down, flies zipping, lights switching off, the first snores filtering out into the night. I stomped my boots, kicked at the wind-packed snow, shook my hands to keep warm. Somewhere across camp was the other watch, but I couldn't see her. My headlamp flickered. It was too cold for the batteries. I switched it off and waited for my eyes to adjust. There were no stars, no northern lights, but the land was too white to ever be pitch black, no matter how dark it got. Instead, the snow, the mountains, the sky, everything was gray. I stood suspended in it. Gradually, I could make out the tents. The dogs were small mounds curled in nests of snow. Somewhere nearby, I thought, is a polar bear. Polar bears eat people, eat them just when I thought I'd been getting used to things. I walked to the edge of the ring of dogs and stared into the gray, searching for movement. I squinted into the dark, and the dogs exploded. It happened all at once. The dogs were lying curled in their mounds, and then they were shrieking, growling, screaming with an energy I had never heard before. I hit the side of my headlamp and shone the beam around the circle, but all I could see were the dogs' tense bodies and the snow that swirled around them. The guide, I thought, the gun, but my limbs felt weak. I kept sweeping my light around me. Dogs, 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 and, and now the guide was beside me with his rifle high, shouting something I could barely make out. Where were the dogs looking? And I realized with horror that they weren't facing an approaching danger, something they had scented on the wind. Whatever the dogs were barking at, it was already inside the circle. Whoa. <laughs> That was so it's chilling, a... even Flame left the stage. Oh, oh, honey. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> All right, Flame's coming back up the stairs. Okay. <laughs> she's, she's a big jumper. She can actually jump a six-foot fence. Fences don't work for her, but she's not used to slippery floors. So what, what do they do? They've just <laughs> covered 3,500. What do they do when they come back home? They like watch Netflix? Are they, you know, how do they come off of that? Oh my gosh, they like roll in dead things. Um, no, we have to, like, that's the thing about sled dogs is, you know, from like September to May is really their season, but they're dogs year round. It's not like you park them in the garage. <laughs> like they, they, and they have so much energy when they come in at the end of the season. So what I'm trying to do now, like, 
during the hottest part of the day, they sort of sleep in the shade, and then we try to like bring them to a lake where they can run around and stuff like that. We try to like give them popsicles, you know, frozen stuff, and just sort of keep them from getting bored with that pent-up energy. But what I'm really trying to do now is we have all these yearlings who I couldn't work with individually during the winter because I was spending 12 hours a day training the whole team, and I'm trying to teach them all to sit. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is like a lot harder than it sounds because these are like teenage dogs that are built to run 100 miles a day, and like the last thing they want to do is stop moving. So to be like, sit still, stop moving, it just... Now, when it, you're in the race, it bugs do, you, them. do you talk to them? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you ever sort of lose track of the fact that you're talking to dogs? I sort of like, and one more thing about you. <laughs> like, do you get into that space? Because well, like, you're I, there alone with them. I always speak to them in full sentences. <laughs> I, I always explain things to them. I think they, I mean, it, in English I or try, Norwegian? you know, it may or may not work, but I try. I think she understands full sentences. Uh. Flame, will you go lie down on your blanket? Blair Braverman, thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you. No, hang, hang out. And thank you to Flame, our first dog of the week. <laughs> that was Blair Braverman, our Jew of the Week, last week at our live show in Chicago. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. So I had this question. I wondered, What's it like to be a rabbi in Santa Fe, New Mexico? I don't know how I got this idea in my head. I just thought, you know, my parents once traveled there. They said it was this cool, weird, spiritual, funky, gorgeous sunset, kind of unique place. And everything I've ever heard about it is that it's not so Jewy. It's like everything else. It's Christology and acupuncture and yoga and shamanism and native traditions, obviously, Catholicism, but no Jews. Of course, that's wrong. It's a, it's a substantial American city. And I thought, who's the rabbi in this town? So I did a little research, and it turns out the rabbi in this town, Rabbi Neil Amswich, is a British gentleman, Scottish trained, who is a Star Wars obsessive, a board game collector, wrote his rabbinic school thesis on trans issues in Judaism many years before that was a topic anyone else was talking about. And having served a congregation on the coast of England, got the call to go to Santa Fe. He was not the Jew I expected to talk to, but it turns out he was the Jew I needed to talk to. It's like, what corner of America looks the most like the Maz Eisley Cantina? And that's where I want to surf. That's right. Rabbi Neil Amswich, have a listen. My name is Rabbi Neil Amswich. I'm the rabbi of Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe in New Mexico. I didn't know Santa Fe at all. When we were in Bournemouth, uh, looking at the job post, my wife, who's from White Plains, New York, um, she had actually been to Santa Fe as a teenager and said it was a wonderful place. 
Um, she remembered it fondly. I saw the community here and I saw that this was a perfect match for me. This is a warm, friendly, exciting, progressive, social justice-focused community, which was exactly what I was looking for. When we had the Skype interview, um, I remember at the end of the interview, there the interviewer was asking me, do you have any questions? And the wise thing at that point is not to ask anything very challenging, but a question popped into my mind, and I'm very glad I asked it. And, and I said, is God in your community? And the whole interview panel, I remember, was slightly taken aback. And somebody replied by saying, yes, I think so. Some members find God in our services. Some find God in our educational sessions. Some find God in our events. Some find God in our community. Some find God in social justice. So we each find God in a different way. And that, for me, was a real call to that community at that point. It was such a wonderful, powerful answer for me. So I was very lucky to be called out for a, a further interview. I remember landing in Santa Fe in 2013, I think it was. Yes, 2013 for the interview. And I, I remember looking out at the desert thinking, what a godforsaken place. What am I doing here? I don't care how warm and friendly this community is. This place is a dead desert. And, um, and I was very worried. And I went through the interview process, and it was a wonderful interview. Within two days, seeing the spectacular sunsets, seeing the, the closeness to nature here in New Mexico, I realized I had been totally wrong. And it, this is a God-filled place for me. Um, the the connection to the earth here is very special. We are really aware of nature here in Santa Fe uh, and in New Mexico. When it rains, we celebrate. It took two days for me to get used to the fact that this is a different kind of beauty. This is a different kind of connection to God and to the world. And for me, it was it was an immediate, I must work here. I can't imagine being anywhere else because it is so real, um, it's so connected, and we're so connected to each other. It's, it's very powerful for me. Temple Beth Shalom has over 800 members and, and is continually growing, and we genuinely feel like a large family. And I think that's because there are, is such a different demographic, uh, and so often we find people coming in saying, oh, you're from White Plains, New York as well, I know from this person from here, and so on. Um, but there are also people who have had very little connection to Judaism. But when they come here, the search for community is very real. Santa Fe is a place of real healing. I've experienced it in a, a genuine, profound way. It's a place of beauty. So there are, there are a lot of artists and therapists in Santa Fe. The artists are the ones expressing themselves creatively, and the therapists are the ones who are helping people heal. And I don't mean that facetiously. I think it's, it's a very important aspect of Santa Fe living. And that all leads into the Jewish community itself, which is a Jewish community that is a place of healing and a place of creative expression. Coming from a conservative British background, this community, 10 years ago, I might have described with a pejorative term, happy clappy. Now, I embrace that. 
Um, I don't think it's a negative thing at all. There are, there are people in Santa Fe whose spirituality is quite different to mine. Uh, I am the co-president of the Interfaith Leadership Alliance. So I, I am, I'm involved in a lot of differing faith communities. But there are a lot of people in Santa Fe who are anti-authoritarian, spiritual, but not religious, they will say. And they use the same words or the same themes that we use. They just use different words. So instead of saying they feel a connection to God, they might say, I feel a connection to creation or to Mother Earth. And so there are some things I look at um, and say, that's not for me. That's not my spirituality. But I think what's exciting for me about Santa Fe, and particularly Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe, is we have found a nice mix between Keva and Kavanah, between the fixed forms of Judaism and the fluid expression of Judaism. And I would say British Jewry leans much more heavily towards Keva, towards getting it right, um, whereas American Reform Judaism, certainly in Santa Fe, is about what is what is the genuine expression of self here in connection with God or with the larger community? What is authentic Judaism for me? One of the most interesting um, challenges in Santa Fe and in New Mexico, um, or perhaps opportunities, I should say, is the crypto-Jewish community, um, which is a community of people who are descended from individuals who fled the expulsion from Spain in 1492. Um, and every once in a while, I will have somebody come into my office and they'll say to me that grandma just died. And before she died, her last words were essentially, by the way, you're Jewish, don't tell anyone. And is that why we in our family light two candles on the Friday and dress in white and have a braided loaf? Um, and so... So for us, we are experiencing very differing aspects of spirituality all around Santa Fe, all around New Mexico, and, and trying to help bring people in. I always say that Temple Beth Shalom is a place of Jewish prayer, not a place of prayer for Jews. In other words, this is not the Jew place. This is not where the Jews go. This is a place where we pray through a Jewish lens, uh, through the Jewish tradition with a, a certain creativity and, and certain exciting ways of expressing ourselves. And if you like that, Jew or not, then come along, come and pray with us. That's for us what it's about. So Santa Fe is very diverse spiritually. And that I think is a real strength for our community. Rabbi Neil Amswich is the rabbi of Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. This next guest, obviously very timely, a lot of news from the borderlands, from the frontier right now. Um, Stephanie, tell us about Melissa Unterrecker. I called it Melissa, who works as an immigration lawyer down in El Paso with Frontera Immigration Law. We talked about how she got her start in activism, what it means to be an immigration lawyer, particularly when you live on the border, and how Judaism informs her work. My name is Melissa Unterrecker, and I live in El Paso, Texas. I'm originally from Madison, Wisconsin, but I've been living down here with my husband and two kids since 2012. 
my husband and I, he's originally from Philadelphia. We're both Spanish-speaking attorneys, and I've always practiced immigration law. When we moved down here, he was doing kind of labor and employment law with immigrant workers. And so we had this opportunity to come experience the border, thought we'd be here for a year or two, have a little adventure, and then move back to be closer with our families. But we just love living here so much. We can't see ourselves leaving anytime soon. The last few years I've been in El Paso, I've been in private practice, and I opened up my own practice a couple of years ago where I'm primarily serving mainly Mexican and Central American immigrants. We do see in El Paso some interesting diversity from all parts of the world. So I have clients from all over, but mainly in my practice, I'm doing non-removal immigration cases. So that's green cards, that's citizenship. It's in my practice, I deal with a lot of crime victims. So there's special visas for crime victims that I do. And then for the last five years or so, I've served on the board of Las Americas Immigrant Advocacy Center, which is one of two primary nonprofit legal services organizations in El Paso. And Las Americas serves primarily asylum seekers and refugees. So they've been really at the crux of what's been going on at the border with the Central American migrants and the so-called crisis that's been happening here, which it, it truly is a crisis in the humanitarian sense. And so I've been working with that organization and advising them on, you know, providing legal services and the best way to do that, the best way to stay sustainable. And there's just an overwhelming need right now for legal representation. And so that's that's pretty much what I've been doing. So El Paso is right on the border with Mexico. What is it like seeing the situation at the border, not reading it in the news from, you know, several states away across the country? What is it like being there? Yeah, that's a really good question because it's something that we hear the border talk about all the time that the rest of the country really doesn't understand anything about the border if they've never been here and never even seen it and are just going by the news accounts because the news makes it out to be just this porous border, this place of lawlessness, just bad people coming across, um, bringing in drugs, weapons. And honestly, El Paso is the safest community I've ever lived in. It's been the most welcoming, most beautiful community. Um, It's just a really wonderful place to live and raise a family. Topographically, it's really beautiful. We're at the tip of the Rocky Mountains. And um, what we're actually seeing are families, children, you know, infants, pregnant women, people who are fleeing horrific violence in their home countries have left there by no choice of their own. They feel like they have to leave. And they're coming here looking for what all of us want is just safety for our children, better life, good food to eat, and, you know, way to be healthy and just enjoy each other. And so we see the humanity in what's going on. We see the people that are really here not to do harm to our country, but just to live peacefully. And in my opinion, we don't need a wall. These people are coming to directly to our border or ports of entry, and they're presenting themselves asking for asylum to engage in a legal process of presenting their claim. And if, you know, many people will not qualify for asylum and they will eventually be sent back, but they do qualify for a legal process that's been a fundamental part of our asylum and refugee laws for you know, many decades. 
what we're seeing in El Paso is a community that has really come together to shoulder the burden of that crisis in a way that no one else in the country is doing. So that means spending our free time, our weekends, providing meals to families who have recently been released from ICE detention. It means going through our closets and pulling out old clothes and blankets and towels and sheets and buying um, hygiene products and um, going and doing what we can to make this crisis um, survivable for the people who are suffering the most. And how have religious communities been part of those efforts? It would be a full-blown disaster if it wasn't for the religious communities. Both the Jewish, Catholic, Christian, all even Muslim communities have come together in El Paso to support one another and to support the efforts. One of the biggest issues that we deal with in El Paso is that the people that are being detained by Customs and Border Protection and ICE are held in those facilities for days up to a week sometimes before they're released into the streets with no plan for where these people are supposed to go, how they're supposed to connect with their family members within the interior of the country. Many times these people have been kept in horrific conditions within these government facilities, so very little food, freezing conditions, no showers, no safe drinking water. Many of them are sick, many of them are children, infants, pregnant women, and so they're released onto the street And it's really because of a hospitality center called Annunciation House, which is primarily supported by the Catholic diocese and by private donations, that we've been able to keep most of these people off the streets. How does your Jewish identity inform the work that you're doing? I mean, personally, I've always grown up with a sense of of social justice, and that comes both from my Jewish identity, but also I think my parents growing up during the civil rights movement, being really active in that, and their parents. But we've always believed that we are part of a greater community than just ourselves, and it's our obligation to help others, to lift up our communities, provide for the hungry. In our temple community, it's been really interesting because there's a wide spectrum of political opinions on immigration and on the policies and the laws in place. But ever since the family separation crisis that happened last summer, it sort of crossed a line to where, regardless of your political opinion on it, everybody, well, the people that I that I know within the Jewish community in El Paso, and it's, we've seen a huge outpouring from all across the spectrum within our Jewish community of people saying, these are human beings. We have an obligation as Jews to help them. That was Melissa Underecker. For people who want to help her out in her work, you can check out lasamericas.org. That's las-americas.org. I sat down with Stanford M. Adelstein, a former state senator from South Dakota, and the subject of the new book, The Question is Why? A Jewish Life in South Dakota. Your book opens with a great story about meeting David Ben-Gurion. Yes. And, you know, his reaction to learning you were from South Dakota. We'd become accustomed to people looking at me when you said, where's South Dakota? And I made a little sketch of the United States with the Mississippi and the Ohio and the Denver and Minneapolis, New York, Los Angeles. So uh, when he came to me, he said, South Dakota? And I started to reach in my pocket to get my little map, and I have no idea how he knew what was there. But he said, no, no, put up his hand. No, no, the question isn't where, the question is why. 
And at that point, then I had to give an answer, and I said, it's my mission. So then he pulled the board in again and said, what is your mission? And I thought, didn't know what I was going to say, but Isaiah says that we should be a light to the nations. Since that time, we were all kind of familiar with the uh, Jewish canary in the mine, and I think this is just another way to look at it. Your family came to America and settled first in Iowa and then later found their way into South Dakota. My family was in Des Moines. My grandmother left my father behind in Des Moines. She had uh, just separated from her second husband, and she just wanted to be alone, a single mom. And so she took a homestead near interior South Dakota and later moved into the town of Kadoka, uh, where she ran a general store. So I think a lot of us think of immigrants coming to this country, getting through Ellis Island, settling in New York City. But your family didn't do that. And I imagine a lot of Jewish families actually went much further west than a lot of us realize. Quite a number came to Iowa and to Nebraska, the eastern end of Nebraska. Not that many in South Dakota. And there's still we still have the lowest Jewish population of any state in the nation. What is the population today? They tell me it's 300 the oldest Jewish community in South Dakota was in Deadwood, South Dakota. Uh, the merchants, uh, when the gold strike was uh, hit, almost all of the uh, the merchants were Jewish, and there was um, there were a series of what uh, they called Jewish peddlers that would take literally carrying on their back the goods to the miners and the little mining that it was doing. The uh, first mayor of Deadwood, and he didn't talk like the TV program was the first Jew to be in the state legislature in 1897. Wow. So you mention in the book that, quote, the rich and nurturing soil of South Dakota's core values um, and how, how they've been so important to you. Could you explain what those values are and how they've impacted the person you are today? Honesty. A handshake is worth more than a, than a written. Uh, in terms of business, uh, respect for talent and acceptance of honest thought and expression, I would say, would be things that are really important to me. We had a politician, Walter Dale Miller was his name. He was a very dishonest business person, and uh, South Dakota being a small state, anything someone says about you gets back. And they uh, always came back to me when he said, you know how, quotes, they do business, close quotes. His dishonesty was such that people would come back and say, you know, uh, your handshake is worth more than his signature with five notaries. So how they do business is they, the Jews? Yeah, they, they wouldn't say Jews. Something would come up, about, come up about Stan Adelstein. Yeah, you know how they do business. So is that something you've just had to deal with your whole life? Sort of being a stand-in for a whole group of people that people have ideas about? That's a great question. I would say that probably that was a minority. Uh, and we, particularly my father, was recognized for integrity, and hopefully I have been recognized for the same thing. What happens, they don't know much about Jews. Now, there are occasions where sometimes significantly. One year there was a special session of the legislature, and uh, the... Majority leader and speaker pro tem scheduled a special session for Yom Kippur. But that's 
President Pro Tem, had also come out and supported my opponent during a primary, and I lost by 112 votes. I then endorsed the Democrat, who was elected by 300, and uh, then I had to come back to, to win the seat again. Do they even know when Yom Kippur is? Are they? Is it obvious that they're trying to inconvenience you? or It couldn't have been an accident. And when I argued with the majority leader, who was the one that called me for about 15 minutes, he said, well, it's very expensive. All the paperwork is done. We have enough votes. There's only one of you out of 105. We just can't change it. And I argued a little more. And he said, goodbye, goodbye. Then I called the governor, who happens to be now our senator. I got no further than the first sentence. Mike, you know that special session is set for Yom Kippur. He said, that's outrageous. It will be changed. And it was. As a Jew, as a South Dakotan, how much of your identity is built around those two things and influenced by both of them as being a Jew in South Dakota? Senator Mike Rounds, who read the whole book and he has other things to do, he said, this tells the story of Stan's life as the South Dakota Jew. With my father's generation, the South Dakota Jew was always pejorative. In my lifetime, it's become congratulatory. What is Jewish food like in South Dakota? Are there delis? What do you eat? How uh, do you do, what do you do? Jewish food is not like anything because you can get lox, of course. We don't get kosher meat. Uh, there's some pork. Publicly, people know never to serve any pork to me. One, one day at a meeting, uh, lunch hour meeting in the, in the governor's uh, conference room, everybody but me was served a miserable little shrug and pork chop. <laughs> and uh, my friend Mac McCracken, Scotch. It's uh, a great name. Yeah, great guy, big guy, wonderful guy, good friend. He put up his hand, and the governor said, what is it, Mac? And he said, could I be Jewish today? <laughs> I had this beautiful Reuben sandwich. <laughs> Stan Adelstein, thank you so much. The book is The Question is Why, Stanford M. Adelstein, A Jewish Life in South Dakota. Hey, Leo, remember that trip we took to Houston back in November for that cool live show? I've only recently sobered up from that trip. That was an amazing trip. It was an amazing live show. And who we got from that live show? We met an amazing Jew. He is Josh Furman, a historian at Rice University and an expert on the American Jewish community, especially the one down south in Texas. He tells us where did Texas Jews come from, these mystical breed of people, and what treasures he finds in the flooded out basements of Houston area Jews. Have a listen. You have like a very cool professor vibe right now. Thank you. You really do. The socks are really killer. Do you want to show? Like, Thank look you. at that. Those are Beatles socks. I freaking love it. Hopefully all the folks listening at home can see that. <laughs> they all can. This is a very visual medium. So. No, this is, this is standard issue professor. I've got the cardigan, the cap. Can we call you Josh, Joshua, professor? Yehoshua. What do your students call you? Well, in, in Germany, I would be Herr Professor Doctor, but we don't have to do that. Josh I, I is think, fine. I think that'd be kind of nice. <laughs> what do your students call you? Uh, Dr. Furman. Dr. Furman. God. So it's, it's yeah. a doctor culture at Rice. Herr her yeah. Dr. Furman. Herr Dr. Yeah, Furman. no. Please yeah. no. So, okay. So, Doc, you are sort of like the expert in our, for our purposes, you are really, you know a ton about the Houston, the Texas Jewish community, the Houston Jewish community. Will you tell us like how did, when, how, where did, like how did Jews first get to Texas? Great question. Well, it starts with the question, who is a Jew? 
Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone did you sit back. Go, did you want to go there? It's going to be a long evening. So there were new Christians, that is the descendants of Jews who were forcibly converted to Christianity as part of the Inquisition, who came here um, as part of the Spanish conquest of uh, what became Mexico and then Texas. So we could go back to the 1500s if you wanted to. Um, but really, if we want to talk about Jewish settlement in Texas, it begins really with the 1830s when, when Texas becomes a, an independent country. And then um, Jews have been in Houston where we are since Houston was a city. And do we know who the first, like they know who the first Jews in say New Amsterdam were? Do we know who the first Jews in Texas were? Um, there was a Jew named uh, Eugene Shemin who fought in the, the war for Texas independence. I guess that's that's some yichus right there. Yeah, I was kind of hoping dropping a little Ziggy Yiddish and the other guy in there. Were the first Kenny and Ziggy. Kenny, Kenny and Ziggy. <laughs> no, Ziggy. I love Ziggy, but but yeah, no, Ziggy is uh, Ziggy is imported. <laughs> <laughs> no disrespect, Ziggy. We love you. And you personally have a very interesting family story of how you guys got to Texas. Yeah, so I I, I am a Texas native uh, by way of Mexico. So my great grandparents wanted to leave Eastern Europe in the 1920s, can't imagine why, um, <laughs> and uh, could not get into the United States because of a series of very restrictive quota laws that made it very, very hard for Jews from Eastern Europe to get here. So uh, they and thousands of other uh, Eastern European Jews went to places like uh, Mexico. So my family, my, my grandparents met in Mexico City and then came to Texas in 1960. Do you consider yourself then, or did they consider themselves Mexican Jews at any point? Well, sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, my, my father's first language was Spanish. In fact, when I was a kid and I would run out in the street chasing a basketball, my dad would scream frantically at me in Spanish and I didn't know Spanish. So I would stop <laughs> and just turn at him and what? That was like his primal protective yeah, language. Yeah, no, that's like, his first language. If your and kid's about to be run over, sure. yell and Yeah, Spanish. and satyrs every year, we would, there would be guacamole on the table and we'd, you know, dip the... Dip the matzah in guacamole, and I just assume that's what everybody did. That, like that should be what everyone does. That sounds much it's better. It's actually than delicious. If you haven't tried it, you really should. We should dip in guacamole and then, like the Persians, whip each other with scallions. That's right. <laughs> during Dayenu, which is a, a, an amazing. We're gonna start or, that this or or tamales. You or, know. Yeah, or tamales. Either okay. one. Yeah. So tell us about the archive. Sure. So um, I uh, came to Rice University in uh, in 2015 really having no intention of doing local history, of becoming an archivist. I'm not a trained archivist really at all. Um, and um, got interested in Houston Jewish history. It was a field that wasn't getting a lot of attention, a lot of interest, uh, which I found puzzling because Houston is the fourth largest city in the United States. Uh, as I said, Jews have been here since Houston was established. Um, Galveston, just down the road, was where 10,000 Jews came into this country. So there's a lot of really important American Jewish history happening right here in Texas that wasn't getting a lot of attention. Um, and so I had started thinking with, with my colleagues at Rice about a project that we could do to really bring Texas and Houston Jewish history to the forefront. And that was in the summer of 2017. And then at the end of August uh, is when Hurricane Harvey hit. And that really changed everything. Uh, and I began to, to really worry about um, what was happening to the historical records of synagogues in our community here in Houston, as well as families, uh, and to their, to their photographs, to their records that weren't being collected, and because of the floods, um, were really being endangered. So we, we launched this project uh, to, to collect and preserve and make this stuff available. You put out a call, if anyone who has anything, please get it. Yeah, yeah we, we put out a series of calls. Um, 
the whole thing actually started. We went to um, a synagogue here in Houston, uh, United Orthodox Synagogue. My wife who's here tonight, who was seven months pregnant. Um, we put on gloves. Thank you. We put on, you know, gloves and masks. She didn't go in, but a colleague of mine, Rice, and I went into a synagogue that had five, six feet of water in it, and we pulled out, you know, cemetery maps and membership directories and board minutes, soaking wet, covered in mold. I mean, it was a, it was a nasty science fair experiment <laughs> and um and we managed to to save it all and bring it back to the library at rice and we just we haven't stopped we haven't stopped since that since that day collecting every piece of paper and photograph we can get our hands on it's like it's like houston jewish um american pickers what's that what's that show some crazy stuff has happened so are there things where someone says you know you have to see this it was my grandfather's something something and you're sort of like thanks but no thanks Where's yeah, the that line happens. for you? Yeah, there's a line. Usually the rule is it, it, it has to check the Jewish box and it has to check the Texas box. So, like, if you have this really old um, chumash from Vilna, like, that's cool, but that's not what we collect. But, yeah, I, we get a lot of inquiries and requests. People, sadly, have a lot of old books that they don't want, and we don't just take old books. Really. Like, can you come and take the junk away, please? Yeah, right. So Please. what's an example of something that really classically checks the Jewish box and the Texan box? Like, what's a great artifact for you? What's, like, what's an ideal ar- artifact for your archive? You know, a lot of this stuff turns up on eBay. It's kind of it's wild, the stuff that, that people get rid of that turns up at, like, antique stores. Uh, just the other day, I found a, a printing plate from an advertisement from the uh, Robert I. Cohen department store in Galveston. Um, Jewish-owned department store, and somebody had—I didn't even know Shocking. how they got it, where it came from. Twenty-five bucks, I bought it, so we have it. But the coolest and wildest thing that's turned up since we started doing this—I got a Facebook message from a woman I didn't know who said, "I have this World War II flag in my garage. Would you like to come see it?" And I said, "Okay," thinking it was, you know, an American flag that they give to, you know, veterans or soldiers, or whatever. It turned out what she had was this nine-foot-long service flag with 220 names of Jewish men and women from Houston who'd served in the war. And it had been sitting in her family's garage for 30 years because they, they found it. It had belonged to a synagogue that moved, and when it moved, it left it behind. This guy was cleaning out the old building, found it, didn't know what to do with it, took it home, fixed it up a little bit, and it sat in a garage for 30 years. And if that family had lived you know, a mile and a half closer to the to the bayou here in Houston, they would have flooded in Harvey and it'd be gone. So a lot of the story of the work that we do is is it's a lot of rescuing and, and a lot of miracles that, that we've been able to, to find as much stuff as, as we've been able to do. So I don't like the city where I live. It's not a secret. I talk about it, you know, 30 hours a, a week. Um, and I, I, I really, I do very deeply, frankly, truly love it here. Uh, and so one day, I hope to become a Texas Jew. Uh, but I need some tutoring. Yes, thank you. Um, but I need some tutoring uh, on yeah. this matter. Are there, to a professional like you, are there discernible differences between a Houston Jew, a Dallas Jew, an Austin Jew? Like, can you spot a San Antonio Jew just like by the way they say stuff? A well, Corpus Christi Jew? Yeah. <laughs> a Corpus Christi. There are, there are. A body of Christ Jew. There yeah. are Corpus Christi Jews. In fact, my family, we. We used to vacation in Corpus Christi, but like during the off season. So we we'd go like in December, like at Christmas time, and there'd be nobody there, and the water would be freezing. And I Hanukkah, in Corpus right? Christi. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh, no, yeah, there, there there are Jews in Corpus Christi, and a Houstonian would never be caught dead in Dallas. 
Right? Am I right? <laughs> what about, I, was what about I feel like, but you're kind of dodging his question, which is, you know, are there yeah. differences? You know, like, do like, they wear the, different yarmulkes? The what way, are the you stereotypes? Know? Like, do you ever like leave a party and you're talking to your wife and she's like, well, what was he like? And you're like, mm, kind of a Dallas Jew. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know about stereotypes, but you certainly, if you think about Houston and you think about Texas and you think about the South, so there's like the deep South, right? Um, I was I was in um, Mobile, Alabama recently, and I've, I'm active in an organization called the Southern Jewish Historical Society. I've been to Natchez, Mississippi. I drove across Louisiana to get there, and like that's like the deep south. Um, and then you have the new south. You have places like Houston and Dallas and Atlanta, which are very metropolitan cities where a lot of uh, people, Jews included, have found their way there from points in the Northeast and Midwest, and also internationally. Um, and it, it has a very different feel and vibe. I mean, Houston is one of the most, if not the most, diverse city in the entire United States. Amazing. So speaking of diversity, could you tell us a little bit about the people in the Houston specifically, or the Texas Jewish community? Like, what makes it unique? And where, where the people, you know, since the Converso era, where people have come from? Where people have come from? Besides Liel from the yeah. Upper West Beside Side. Besides New York. Right. Ziggy. Besides from Kenny and Ziggy's yeah. and from out of an Uber, they've come from everywhere. Houston's Jewish community was relatively small until the 1970s, only about 15,000 Jews or so. One of the things that changed Houston's fortune was obviously NASA coming down here. The oil boom, right? Houston is really, you know, the oil, oil capital of the country. We have a great medical center. But air conditioning. Air conditioning, as you've probably <laughs> noticed, given that it's, you know, November and the high today was, what, 85? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's 85 nice and cool degrees. in here. Yeah. Nice and cool in yeah. here. Yeah. There was a wonderful article that was done in uh, Look Magazine profiling Meyerland, which is the neighborhood which has really been the center of Houston's Jewish community since the 1960s. And the article had a quote from a, a native Houstonian talking about air conditioning. And he said, all this air conditioning is going to do is allow a lot of damn Yankees to come down here and live. That's right. Uh, and that man was exactly right. That's exactly what happened. In your work as an archivist, I'm, I'm really curious, like, is there, I, I didn't want to let you go until I asked this question, which is like, is there an artifact that has moved you the most, that has just brought you to tears the most, or we've really sort of lost your professional, you know, mean for a moment and thought like, wow, this really takes me back. Or is there one you feel like closest to i guess but this I belongs say. on my living room wall yeah one yeah you've Maybe. wanted one you wanted to oh, steal oh no we never do that <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh there's so many i mean i keep coming back to the banner just because of what an incredible find it was and miracle that it had survived but what's been so nice about finding that is is, is it has 220 names on it and a few of those people are actually still alive World War II veterans in their 90s. Um, and I had the pleasure this year, just in the last few months, of meeting two of them. And even one of them was well enough to come to the university, to the library, and see his star wow. on a flag. Wow. I mean, to be able to do that is just, blows your mind. What, so what, about, wow. like, what about like kitsch? Is there like an Astros menorah? Like what's the worst thing? Oh yeah. No, we have, we have our fair share of kitsch. I mean, I, I have to kind of go through my mental Rolodex of the kitschiest stuff that we have. We should probably augment our, our collection of like Texas kipot, yeah. right? Like our Astros kippah, our UT kippah. We, we're kind of deficient there. You know, I, I could see a historian in a hundred years going, but what did they wear on their heads? I like to right. think. How did they show their Texas pride <laughs> in shul? 
and we won't have a good answer for them yet. So you've you've inspired me. I like to think that in the '60s there was really just like a a, a spate of NASA kipot that just like like <laughs> rockets taking if off. If anybody and... here tonight has a NASA kippah from the 1960s, see me after the show. <laughs> so please. So that's my question for you. How do people get in touch with you? People who are listening, people who are here tonight. How do? What's the? I mean, Facebook message. It sounds like. Yeah, we're on we're on Facebook. The Houston Jewish History Archive has a Facebook page. I'm on Facebook. I actually have a, a, a private Facebook account, and I have a professional <laughs> Facebook account for my for my students at Rice. We also have a website. Um, jewishstudies.rice.edu and there's a tab for the archive there where you can you can find us. So much of this work happens on social media. I, I think if we were trying to do this 20 years ago, it would be a lot harder for us to reach people and for people to find us. But I, I get Facebook messages, I get emails, I get phone calls. I even now kind of get noticed like when I go to kosher restaurants <laughs> here in Houston and people are like, oh, you're the archive guy. Here, wait, let me get something boy out chick. of my trunk. Come here. Yeah, boy chick. Right. Herr Dr. Professor Yehoshua Furman, thank you for being our Jew of the Week. That was Josh Furman, who in addition to being a super smart historian, wore the best pair of chaps I've ever seen on an unorthodox guest. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous harosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Upcoming episodes, people, a little a little backstory to why I'm going to tell you this. We got a comment from somebody who said, I want to know more of what you guys are reading, more of what you're listening to, more of what movies you're seeing. And we thought, yes, yes, you, you do need to know more about us. We don't talk about ourselves enough. Maybe we could at least give our listeners a preview about what we're working on in upcoming shows so you can sort of catch up with our listening, reading, etc. July 11th, we will be broadcasting a live show we did in Queens. Two terrific guests at that show. Claire Malone is a writer for 538, the political forecasting website. She is one of the hosts of their podcast, 538 Politics. So go have some listens to that. And Leon Nafak, another podcaster supremo, uh, his podcast used to be called Slow Burn. He's now taken the show on the road to a different company, and he hosts Fiasco. So sign up for that podcast, have a listen, and you'll come prepared to listen to us interview Claire Malone and Leon Nafak. July 18th, our guests will be Liz Feldman, who created the TV show Dead to Me, and Greta Johnson, who's the host of the Nerdat podcast. Also some news you can use 
if I may use that cliche. We're launching our first ever listener survey. We want to hear from you. We want to know about you. We want to figure out who you are, the way that you have figured out who we are. Please tell us about yourself, what you love, what makes you mad, what doesn't. Prizes will be won. Go to bit.ly slash uosurvey19. That's bit.ly slash uosurvey19. Do it by July 31st. Enroll to win some prizes. Also, we have a book. It's called The Newish Jewish Encyclopedia. It may be the best book ever written by podcast hosts. Or just why qualify it? Just ever? I, I would say so. It is the greatest cocktail party primer in the history of Jewish publishing. It's coming this fall, and we can bring our roadshow to your city to talk about our book and sign copies of it. If interested, email us at unorthodoxatalentmag.com. Tell us where you're from, what venue we think we should come to. Uh, what venue you think we should come to, how to get in touch with you, and, you know, anything else that might sweeten the deal. Like, what booze will you serve us? Should we come? Will you host us for Shabbos? Where can I go swimming when I'm in town? Finally, we always like your mail. You can write to us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com, or you can call us at 914-570-4869. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodoxatabletmag.com. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live to book us or advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross, that's Cross with a K, at jcross at tabletmag.com. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast or on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producer is Sarah Fredman Ader. And our editor is Melissa Kaplan. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. And rabbinic supervision this week from across America, we landed on when we threw a dart at the map, Rabbi David Steinberg of Temple Israel in Duluth, Minnesota. He gave great supervision this week. Ask him about it. We come to you from Argo Studios, where we are engineered by one Paul Ruest. Shalom, friends.